If you feel like your voice matters and your story matters, you have so much genuine, authentic power that you're operating within to show up for your life every day. Welcome to All Go First. I'm your host, Jessica Minhas, and I'm the founder of All Go First. We are a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting you on your journey of hope, healing, and freedom. Today's episode is all about embracing your unique story and celebrating your otherness. Nikki Innocent joins us. She is a two-time TEDx speaker, a certified woman's leadership coach on diversity, equity, and inclusion, and the host of the podcast, Checkbox Other that focuses on the journey toward belonging, which I was on too. It was super fun. We also talk about learning how to trust yourself and your experience after growing up in a house with alcoholism, super, super difficult, and also learning how to forgive, especially someone who you have a complicated relationship with. Nikki is full of life and someone who is so joyful, it is really contagious. And as always, we so appreciate your support, whether that's rating and reviewing us on iTunes, sharing the show with someone that could be encouraged by it, or donating to support our production. We seriously could not do it without you. So thank you so much from the entire All Go First team and everyone who listens. We are so grateful to be here with you. Now let's get started. So you were saying earlier, we met a year ago. Yes. A year ago last week. That was so cool. Yes. So we were at the Marie Forleo book launch and it was a hip hop music dance motivational tour across the U.S. Yes. She like called it the combination between like a Beyonce concert, a TED talk and something else. I don't remember. I mean, it really, really was that. Yeah. And one of my best friends from childhood introduced us. A lot of ways that I meet people is I'm just like, hi, I'm Mickey. How are you? And now that I'm thinking about it, I was doing that like on the school bus at school too when I was younger. So that's how we met. I walked up to Jennifer. We were like sitting next, standing next to each other at the bar. And I was like, hi, I'm Nikki. What's your name? Oh my gosh. I love it. She's actually on the podcast. She was a few episodes behind us and she talks about growing up and escaping incest. And she was so brave and courageous about it. It's a definitely a must listen. She's so honest about her experience and she has so much wisdom. I can't wait to listen to it. Wow. So you were there because you were actually getting interviewed for all the work that you've been doing over the last few years. Yeah. And just to put this in context, you have taken a big leap as a social entrepreneur and you're a woman of color. This was like your accumulation, at least for that stage last year to celebrate. Yeah, it came out of nowhere, I will tell you. One of the pieces that I think is so important because of what we learn out in the world about like entrepreneurship is that there is this constant cycle of like, I don't know if you've seen those Instagram images of like the the path to entrepreneurship is not like, it's not like a upward spot. (laughs) It's like up, down, all around. Let's go back to where we were last year. Let's come back again. And the Marie Forleo outreach happened and, you know, it was so interesting. It kind of came out of nowhere. And a member of her team named Louise had reached out and had found me. And I, you know, it's like, it feels like star search moment of like, wow. They- oh my gosh, it totally is. But it was so cool and ended up being of the thousands of people that were at the event. It was only 20, 25 of us that had been selected. And so it was all, and the coolest part 
was it was all different people. So my background is in corporate. I was in corporate for over a decade in management consulting, advertising for a hot second, private equity investment management. And I decided for a little over four years ago now to leave those kind of male dominated spaces, primarily white spaces, primarily traditional leadership. So kind of, I always talk about it as like mad men leadership models. Why did you end up leaving? Because it sounds like you had a pretty cush job. <laughs> I, I had, <laughs> uh, on paper, it was great. On my resume, it was great. And I went to a school as a it focused on business. And so building your resume for your career, but also like kind of building your resume of life was what success looked like. And I had gotten to a point where I really had built that resume and had all the receipts that I needed. And I was like, but where's the part where my life starts to feel like mine um, oh. and feel like that joy and that happiness that the, you know, happily ever after type vibe is supposed to start feeling like, why does it feel like I'm still trying to scratch oh, and totally claw to get, get up the that. hill? Yeah, I totally get that. And I'm curious, I know you come from, your dad is Haitian. Yes. So you're second generation. Yeah. So my father immigrated here uh, more than 50 years ago when he was like a preteen, I think. Him and his brother and my grandmother was already here and they lived in New York. And then my father... Play, he played like soccer was his the universal language because when he came here he didn't know English mm-hmm. is an incredibly good soccer player and so um, soccer I think was a big catalyst for him and he ended up getting a scholarship of whatever it was in those days to go to UConn and so that's how my wow, father and my mother met each deal. other yeah wow. and then my uncle went there too and so they had these huge afros and so in Connecticut I don't know how many people are familiar with Connecticut but it tends to not be the most diverse place in the world and that's kind of why I bring it up because you're coming from a second generation family. You're biracial. Yes. Did the work hard ethic, did that come at all from growing up? Uh, yes. From both of my parents in different ways, I think, you know, so yes, my father coming here as an immigrant, but also just, he is somebody that like I, my memory of him even working. So as a child, he had, he had gotten injured and torn his ACL. So he wasn't playing professionally by the time I was born, but I just remember, like, I don't even know if he took a day off of work in the, like, uh, 20 years before my siblings were born. And my siblings and I have a decent gap between our ages. And I just remember not even really thinking that people did that. He loved what he did. And he, you know, he worked in um, group homes with adults that were, uh, had severe disabilities. And most of it was physical. Some of it was uh, mental disability as well, but living in group homes. And so he was there each and every day and loved it so much that, like, work my view of what my right it like blended together was. yeah it was a very different experience when I then got into corporate you mentioned that your mom was also very work oriented what was what was that about well I think so my parents were divorced when I was three and so I think my mom being a single mother I was most I was there for a primary part of the week my father was still very involved in my life it's so weird even in my 30s I think of like Tuesdays and Thursdays as the days that I used to hang out with my dad so even when I talked to him like it's Tuesday it's our day you know <laughs> I love that you have such a great relationship with it. I do. I do. You know, it's divorce in general is such an interesting thing. And I'm sure so many people that are listening, knowing that we have, you know, 50% was the rate when we were younger of people's parents being divorced. Like it's something that can be very uh, traumatizing for folks and it can be really difficult. And I am very, I think it's funny. We talk about privilege a lot when we're talking about like diversity, equity, and inclusion work. But I also, and that's identity-based stuff a lot of the times, and um, primarily, especially right now, we're talking a lot about it from a racial perspective. But I also think that it's important to understand the privileges that you have 
that others might not, and not like I'm better than or, you know, any of that, but just understanding that like the standard experience for a kid of divorce was not for their parents to necessarily be kind to one another and to put them first and to really like my parents. Did you guys have a good relationship? Oh my gosh. Like it's, I know. And it's something that was, again, so normal for me because they were my parents and that they always were amazing. What a blessing. And it wasn't, and it wasn't creepy friendly either. Right. Like it wasn't like, Oh, there was this flame that wasn't, you know, was never (laughs) realized. It was that my parents had decided that they were going to work together to parent me. And I think that that has cascaded through other relationships where my stepmom has been extremely, you know, participating person in my life from when I was a very young age. And so it's just, I think it's permeated through a lot of it. Yeah. That's amazing. Wow. Yeah. I, wow. Yeah, I wish weird. that was the case for a lot of people. I know. I wonder, cause you're so joyful and you're so rooted in yourself and <laughs> your face. Um, Nikki's giving me this face of surprise right now for those of you listening. And I, I just feel that groundedness when I talk to you. And so, you know, you were able to take this risk from, from corporate. And I'm curious if maybe that was a part of having that root that was like quite deep. Yeah. You know, I think there's a part of this that, and I don't want to like, um, I always, in the same way I was talking about like entrepreneurship, isn't this like magical thing? It's not like the Facebook story every time. I don't want to act as though being a child of divorce is a wonderful thing either. There were hard parts to it. The privilege that I talk about is this kind of through line of love, right? And this through line of feeling as though my parents were there for me, but it was a hard thing. And being an only child in that experience, I think is part of what this leap from corporate to kind of doing my own thing. I have had this experience of being the only person in the room because I was the only child and having to kind of be a little bit more mature and older being in a lot of adult situations. So even as a young kid, I think I knew how to kind of operate in rooms independently. And I think that that is something that I I will tell you five years ago, I would never have put those things together. But looking back and after a lot of therapy and a lot of coaching and a lot of self-work, I think there's a lot of just inherently who who I am and my makeup that I've learned about that has contributed to that ability to kind of bet on myself, even though all of the messages that I received in a corporate space that wasn't necessarily set up for me made me feel as though maybe I shouldn't really believe in myself. Maybe there's something wrong with me. So I think those two things paired next to each other was a really interesting juxtaposition to then say, you know what, I'm still going to just leave the safety of this and try something different because I have done all the right things and it's not leading to the life I want. It's leading to my bank account being okay, but it's not leading to the life I want. And I'm 30 years into this and I don't want to spend another 30 years to get to a spot where I am now. I want to be able to have a life and relationships that really feel fulfilling. Part of your work is really in diversity and inclusion. I can see how that's rooted in your own experiences as well. When I look at you, you are half Haitian, you are half white. We've talked a little bit before about what it means to be a person of color and be ethnically ambiguous, where you could be mistaken for different races that you aren't. Yes. I've been mistaken as Italian, as Syrian, and I'm flattered. Thank you so much for welcoming into your community. But also there was a very large component of that and still now where it's like you weren't enough of this one and you weren't enough of this other one. And a big part of the diversity and inclusion work you do is about labeling. I'm wondering, when did you realize that you were different? Oh, well, 
<laughs> I think I think I've always known I'm different a little bit, right? And I think there's a part of it that it's a it's how you view that difference. A lot of times we receive messages, especially as women and women of color, that our differences need to be hidden and we need to become the homogenous version of whatever is the model version of a woman or a person of color or just somebody that is successful or somebody that achieves whatever within our <laughs> capitalistic patriarchal structures that we've got. <laughs> I, I talk about in one of my TED Talks crying on the bathroom stall at work because I didn't want anybody to see. So you talked about me being joyous and whatever. The, you know, I'm, I made that face because I've been in there when I'm not, right? So there's a part of me that's like, oh, it's maybe not everybody gets to see those pieces. But I think I realized that there were so many people around me that were doing just as much as I was, if not less, getting further ahead. And mm, I kept trying yeah. to figure out how to pass yeah. whatever version of success that things look like. And I started to feel myself exhausting myself over and over and over again. So often we're trying to be the model version of whatever we think success looks like for our life. And that tends to include detaching from the parts of ourselves that are truly who we are. What I hear you saying is really about that moment of reckoning with yourself. Mm. And I think a lot of people you know, aren't comfortable with that. I know it took a long time for me to come around to wanting to look at the parts that were difficult, admit that they were difficult, oh, yeah. and then look at it. And then what do you do with that? One of your quotes that I love is, um, to think we're always going to be stuck in our stuff is limiting and unfair to yourself to live up to that kind of life. Yes. So I'm wondering how you were able to reframe it. I think, well, I would say two things though. So it is to recognize yours, right? Recognize yours and understand there are going to be icky parts of it. And a lot of the reason we don't look at it is we've been taught not to really look at the parts that make us uncomfortable. So trusting that you are strong enough to look at those uncomfortable parts is really important. But as you look at those uncomfortable parts, you will see that so much of how you're operating is based on the systems and structures that are around you as well. So we put so much pressure on our own selves and our own individual actions and agency. We think we have the ability to change our world by doing one thing differently yesterday or last week or last year that we stay up into the middle of the night having our anxious brains think about. And we don't give the same amount of space and processing to the systems and structures that are happening around us that make us operate that way when we're just trying to do the best that we can. So I'd like to talk to people about the fact that yes, it is important to give yourself the grace and compassion to like get a little uncomfortable and look at yourself. And the great part is that you actually see parts of yourself that are wonderful as well, that you don't necessarily get to see. Cause when you shut the door, whatever's behind the door, you don't notice there's good stuff there too. And most of the time it's more good than it is bad, but you're so afraid of the boogeyman in the corner that it takes up the whole room. I think that the other part of just really understanding that so much of how we look at ourselves is through the lens of so many things that are outside of us. My therapist one time, she and I were talking about control yes. and I was talking about how I want to change something. And if only something the X, Y, Z would change. And these are things that are impossible to change. So of course she was like, you have to learn to accept and <laughs> all that good cliche nonsense. That's very true. <laughs> Did and you get mad? She, Did you get mad? Then she's such a straight <laughs> shooter. She was like, it's almost as if you're approaching these certain elements in your life that you cannot change with a with an approach of a narcissist that feels like they can change things that they really can't. And so you're saying that you're omnipotent, but you aren't. 
So check yourself. <laughs> yeah. And it's weird because we operate, I don't know, a lot of what I've learned in therapy as well as an adult, I've been in therapy since I was a little kid. So, and I asked for it, which is also just, I know I was like, hi, mom, at like eight or nine years old. I was like, I have a lot of stuff I want to work on and I don't think it's going to happen here. Can I go find someone? Yeah, it was interesting. And it, I will also say that if anybody is uh, Haitian, uh, most people that, and when I was growing up, I didn't know anybody that was Haitian other than my dad and my uncle and my grandmother and my family there. Wow. People all thought where I was growing up, as you were talking about people just speaking to you in all language and, uh, and being kind of racially slash ethnically ambiguous, people thought when I said Haitian at school, it meant Asian. So it was a very interesting experience that just, you know, <laughs> People are going to, to the Dominican Republic to go on vacation, but they don't know that Haiti's right next to it. Like it was a very interesting experience. But I, I mentioned that because a lot of people that I've met in adulthood are like, wait, so you, didn't you grow up in a Haitian household? We don't talk about this stuff. And it was a reaction that I actually got. I remember my father was like, why do you need to go talk to someone? Talk to me. And I was like, no, see, that's, I need to learn how to talk to, like there's needs to be that outside piece. You were so wise. You were like a little prophet. I, it was a little too old for my britches a lot of times. Yeah. But yeah, it, it's, I think therapy and the reframe in therapy is so important. The other part of something that I've learned a lot about when I'm handling those moments where we feel like we've kept them behind the door because they're scary is that a lot of times when we process the spectrum and we stay in the extremes of the spectrum and the goal is to kind of get to the middle. So a lot of times with this control, it's either that we think we have all the control with every breath we take, no matter what we do, we're going to tip, tip the scales of the world or we feel completely futile. Like no matter what I do, I have no control. And just, you know, the waves are gonna wash over me. I can't do anything, I'm gonna drown here. And mm -hmm. the middle is understanding where you have control and where you don't and allowing yourself to release the need for control, but also take action in your life that you have control over to hopefully move towards the future or the next day or the next moment that you're, you're looking for. What I hear you talking about right now is this idea of trust and trusting yourselves and trusting the process and trusting that actually these are where the boundaries are. This is the system issue. This is my issue. And how do I accept compliments? How do I own my giftings? And I just think that that's not a common thing that a lot of people struggle with that. I am projecting, of course. I struggle with that. Project all day. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm just wondering, how have you learned to trust yourself? Oh, I will say the entrepreneurial journey forces you to, <laughs> it's one of those things that if you're somebody taking a chance on an idea that you have, if you don't trust yourself, no one else will. And I say this again, four and a half years into doing this. And so let me be honest that it took a lot of time and it still does a lot of times when I'm like, why am I not just trusting why I'm doing what I'm doing? I've gotten to this point. I've gotten this far. I've learned every step of the way but still I'm looking outside of myself for that trust. Still I'm looking outside of myself for that validation. So we've been talking about trusting ourselves even offline. And yes. when we had this conversation, I was telling you that it's actually scarier for me to try and trust that there's not the chaos and that comes from my trauma. I'm just so used to operating in high, 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 high stress. I've said this before in the podcast, but if there's a fire, if somebody <laughs> has gone missing, if there's a situation where we need to find someone and take justice, I am your girl, but you want me to sit down and meditate and be calm and do all the things I know are good for people who have trauma. I struggle with that so much. I know it's a practice and all of that, but being in a, a being chill with nothing yeah. 
impending on the darkness and being like, when is the, when is the bottom going to fall out is, is new for me. And you said you are learning yourself how to trust in a state of calm. (laughs) It's so funny because I had, um, I hired someone to be full-time on my team this year and we had her six month, uh, check-in of how things were going. And I realized she gave like a, a self-assessment initially. And I was so afraid. I had that impending sense of doom that like, of course, like we haven't talked about it. Things have seemed okay. But because I'm so used to silence, meaning that there's something brewing behind the scenes, I'm just waiting for that moment to create the space for that to come up. So I was very afraid. And it was so funny because it was great. And it was even better because I had a, I had a session with my therapist an hour after. <laughs> and we talked about how silence and calm are not a comfortable place for me historically. I'm used to having to be on guard and really, really ready for whatever is coming and have my armor up. And so I've been doing a lot of work of like identifying the armor and taking it off slowly and trusting that I'm not gonna like, I, I have strong enough muscles behind that armor that I can handle what's coming instead of putting on the armor and just falling apart. And so it was a really interesting experience. Yeah, that you can handle it. Yeah, it was a really interesting experience to have a conversation about the calm and to acknowledge the calm and also to acknowledge my fear of the calm and have that data point that actually it was calm because things are okay and give the time and the space to acknowledge that and also say, oh crap, I was so scared. I was making up a whole bunch of stuff in the back of my head that was wrong. But really, I have to trust the person that I'm working with. I brought this amazing human being on my team for a reason. I have to trust that if things aren't going well, that she will communicate that with me. And I think when you grow up in a household, I mean, we've talked about this before, where there's alcoholism, there's a lot of quiet and not always so quiet, but there's a lot of walking on eggshells. There's a lot of trying to avoid outbursts. There's a lot of uncertainty, especially when you're a little kid where you don't have the complexity of all the neurons and neural pathways that can help you understand the nuance that you're so used to the silence being scary because you don't know what's going to be around the corner. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the work that I've been doing is acknowledging those times when things are fine, but I'm freaking out and why that's happening and what messages are there and welcoming those messages to the party because they're telling you something and it might be the version of me that was eight years old that's telling me something, or it might be the 34 year old telling me something, but there's something that I need to hear that I have created all these shortcuts and hacks for that silence to mean and hold so much more weight. And that impending doom has so much invisible energy that is draining from oh, you that you don't realize. Absolutely. Yeah. That was definitely my household too. And also trying to unravel what people are saying. And what's the true meaning behind what they're saying? Because if I don't get the answer right, then this is going to be much more problematic later. I remember a few instances with my grandfather, and I've said this on the podcast before, and I don't know if you can resonate with this or anyone listening, but it is so sad to grow up in a home with an alcoholic because there's so much loss. You lose this person that you didn't get to meet. That's been really a struggle for me just really feeling sad about it and grieving it and then frustrated and angry. Why couldn't you just be sober long enough? We missed out on all this precious time of our childhood together. I mean, you know, parents are a part of that childhood too because Mm -hmm. of alcoholism and then trying to give space for the history of PTSD. I know my grandfather struggled with PTSD, so trying to hold the compassion for them and for yourself with the reality 
and what yeah, I hear you talking about is that you've had yeah. the, you've grown the ability to hold all that together. And I think that's remarkable. Well, and release a lot of it too. I think there's, and this is where, again, I don't know if, I don't know if it's a good or it's a difference. I won't, I won't even judge it. I think a different experience for me in, in the alcoholism that was living and breathing in my upbringing was it was actually my stepfather. So it wasn't, and, and again, I mentioned earlier, like both my parents were very prominent roles in my life. So he was to me, not that, that formative version of like, you know, your prototypical male or female dynamics in your life. He was kind of an addition and it, he came with a lot of baggage and a lot of weight. And unfortunately, even at like five years old, he saw me as a threat. Really? So a lot. Oh, yeah. How did There's you know this, he saw you as a threat? I mean, you could feel it. He wasn't a very subtle human. Again, as the adult with more nuanced mm -hmm. thinking and with more information being presented to me after he passed. So he passed when I was 20. So he was there from when I was about four or five to when I was 20, which pretty significant formative mm -hmm. years. For sure. And I was told a story about when I was a little kid and he and my mom had first started dating and, you know, the joyous, excited, I, again, walk up to you and, <laughs> and I'm like, hi, I'm Nikki. That's how I am. So a new person's there. I'm like a new friend. This is great. And I like ran, I was so excited to see him like this. I don't even know how early this was, but early enough on. And I ran and, you know, a person leans over and a little kid runs into you and my stomach hit his shoulder and it knocked the wind out of me. And any little kid, when that happens, it's like if you fell and you skinned your knee, you would cry. I cried. And in that moment, I became his villain. I was trying to make him look bad. I was trying to take my mom's attention away from him. There were a lot of dynamics that I got, again, five-year-old me had no idea. Five-year-old me was like, I can't breathe. But adult me saw that pattern play itself out over and over and over again. And he was part of my life for a very long time. The reason I bring it up is I don't think I really acknowledged the loss. And I don't know if I, it's weird because I don't even know if I'm acknowledging it really right now in a way that felt like, oh, I missed out on this person because he wasn't that important to me in a positive way. Mm. But I think the part that is so important is he died of brain cancer. And so his body completely and utterly deteriorated in front of you. That is so painful to watch. Yeah. Was he still drinking at that time? Uh, no, I don't think so. But there's something so humbling about that experience of somebody that had been really a difficult character in my story up until that point, the humbling experience of watching a human being that was taking up so much space and was really loud and boisterous. And again, a lot of, I didn't realize at the time, but like he even had his own smell and a lot of that was alcohol and he smoked a lot of cigarettes. And so there was so much that was just, inherently the character that was played in my life, that when that character changed so much, it happened around the time that three of my friends died in high school. And three so it was this experience friends? in a drunk driving accident. Oh my gosh. Wow. But it was this experience so of much really happening. understanding. Yeah. I know. I know. I wish I could go back and hug um, like a junior year and senior year me in high school. Uh, but it was an experience of really noticing like how fragile life is. And I think the parts, like knowing this like kind of character that was always really hard and difficult and made my life really, really not so great to then see so much humanity in the struggle he was going with was such a hard thing to wrestle with, especially in my 20s where you're trying to figure out a whole bunch of other things. I think a lot of that is where those two things can kind of meet and come together. And I think, you know, anybody that is losing people and, you know, I think where we are in life right now, there's a lot of loss and a lot of grief. 
that is a really complicated thing when it's somebody that you love dearly. And it's also a very complicated thing when it's somebody that you have a really complex relationship with that doesn't always have the most positive dynamics behind it. Because you didn't have a great relationship doesn't mean you don't have a whole lot of feeling around the loss of life and what the loss of that role in your life and how you kind of cope with it. Because a lot of times we have survival mechanisms, especially as we're little kids. And so how you learn to navigate after that's over is a really interesting process as well. One thing that's coming up a lot, I think when I hear your story, I think about this idea of forgiveness. You have said you must give yourself the benefit and the gift of forgiveness. Yes. And when I think back about the tenuous relationship that you had with your dad and everything that happened in high school with your friends, what did that look like for you? Well, with my stepdad, I'll just clarify. But sorry, yeah, your stepdad. No need to apologize. I just like, hey, dad, how you doing? (laughs) Um, (laughs) How do I rectify? You know, I think forgiveness is it's an ongoing journey. I think a lot of times, again, when you think about like the books and the movies and all the things, it's like it's one page in the book and everything's great. And I think forgiveness is its own journey that in the same way we talked earlier about the entrepreneur's journey that's up, down, all around, backwards, again, two steps forward, one step back. I think forgiveness can feel a little bit like that too, the journey towards it. And I think there's this forgiveness and release are really important to me because forgiveness doesn't mean that everything is great. You forget what had happened that you're now best friends or, you know, it doesn't mean that sunshine and rainbows everywhere. It means that you give yourself the ability to let go of the weight you're carrying around with the thing that harmed you, especially if forgiveness is in a dynamic that we're talking about right now, that was a very traumatic experience. And I don't like to throw around trauma, like it's nothing. It was a very traumatic experience. And so really getting to the spot where you understand that a lot of times forgiveness is a gift that you're giving yourself, not necessarily that other person. Whew, I felt good. <laughs> I felt good to say out loud. That's hard. Mm-hmm. I think it's been hard for me to not feel guilty still, like somehow yeah. to take yeah. ownership. When my grandfather was passing, he was still drinking and also just watched him deteriorate over yeah. years. And then he wasn't taking care of himself. And again, like that was another part of the loss. But the forgiveness has been hard to untangle and be like, this is mine and this is his. I think a lot of it is when you have somebody in your life that has an addiction, I think a whole lot of the ways that we have these behaviors come from the stuff that we learn as a kid. For sure. And absolutely. Like ghosting. I feel like ghosting and dating is a perfect example of that. Oh my gosh. Right. Right. That is normal. That that's the way we interact with each other by just disappearing. I think it does make it so you, you don't trust, we talk trust, you don't trust what you're seeing, feeling, hearing in totally. the moment because outside of that moment, something completely unexpected and something that doesn't align with your real lived experience of these folks can happen. And it's like, oh, I want to be able to trust me, but I also need to acknowledge what's happening real time. Yeah. Yeah. That's been really, really hard for me to integrate. I think that this kind of ties into the integration part about how do we own our story in a full way. You you were talking about trust. We're talking about forgiveness. We're talking about what's yes. theirs, what's ours, boundaries. How are you understanding pulling it all together? I think when you're getting to a point of understanding your story, it can be pretty simple. You think so? 
I, I, I think so. And I think that a lot of what we put around it is keeping that door closed or avoiding the scary stuff. We know our stories, but we're so afraid. We do a lot of buffering language. We do a lot of kind of explanatory dynamics all around it to, to make it either palatable for people, safe for people, safe so we don't offend someone else. And to me, the beautiful world that we could live in, the future that I hope we have in, in hopefully very soon, one way or another, is that people are able to be raw and honest and vulnerable. A big part of what I talk about is feeling other. So my podcast is called Checkbox Other. My TED talk was about embracing your other. And I think a lot of that is the piece we don't talk about. The other piece is the thing that makes us uncomfortable, but it's also what I believe unlocks our ability to really connect with each other and tell stories in a way that even if you're not other with me, you felt that other before and you can identify and feel those feelings that I'm feeling as well, because we really are all humans trying to do the best we can right now. What is giving you hope right now? Oh. I, oh, I'm going to start crying. I think one of the things that is giving me so much hope is seeing and hearing from people that you know exist but haven't always been in front of the camera or had the microphone. I think hearing people's stories, having your story heard is like one of the most powerful things. Yeah, I think my dad would be fine to be sharing this. One of the things, again, I mentioned he was like, therapy, don't go to therapy, talk to me. One of the things that has been happening around the national reckoning on racial injustice is that there have been more conversations about race that have been not something you're allowed to talk about. And I think creating these spaces where we have the ability to hear other people talk about their experiences, but also hear ourselves and witness ourselves talk about something that we haven't necessarily been welcome to do before can be a very therapeutic process and be an extremely healing process. And I also think it's something that at least gives me a whole lot of hope because if you feel like your voice matters and your story matters, you have so much genuine, authentic power that you're operating within to show up for your life every day. I'm like crying. I, I'm <laughs> getting chills and crying. Wow. Wow. Taking up space and giving yourself that permission. Yeah. I mean, right. Think about therapy and why therapy can be so amazing because you have a space where someone is allowing you to speak the unspoken out loud. Mm. Right. And if we could, if it wasn't something that was confined to HIPAA laws and to a 45 minute session and you had more spaces in your life where you could speak the unspoken and you had relationships that you could trust that would hold enough space for you to do that. And you learned how to trust yourself by witnessing yourself saying them out loud. The world would be a completely different place in the most beautiful way. And I don't mean it like everyone's going to be like Nikki because of it. I mean it like everyone's going to be like themselves fully themselves. They're put on this earth to be who they are, not to be like me or not to be like whatever prototype. I think it would change the world, truly. I completely agree. I think that there's so much magic in finding the freedom to pursue your dreams and they're so unique to each one of us, you know? Yes. Something that I've struggled with is, and I love that you're talking about this, what I think of when it comes to identity, hearing you talk about this is to keep it simple. And I've definitely struggled with, I need to be here. I need to be here. And, you know, of course that's rooted in wanting to be loved and, and be well, seen. and being ambiguous. I oh think that gosh, that's part that's of it so too. True. Yeah. Yeah. My entrepreneurial journey. How many times have you had to give someone a bio? I'm getting chills right now. Oh, how many times have you had to give a bio of yourself and how uncomfortable does it feel? Because you feel like, am I giving you the bio of who I am? Or am I telling you who I am in the way you want to hear it and you want to receive it? 
because that's a whole different experience that especially if you're somebody that people are coming up to you and speaking different languages, not even meeting you where you are from a linguistic perspective. It's something you're very used to having to learn how to be a chameleon in order to make them comfortable. So you asking me who I am, I need to try to survey everything that you need, want, where your history was, what I'm going to say that's going to relate to you. Like that's a whole lot of work and makes it so your story ends up being so long because I'm trying to just hit at least one way where you're going to hear it and resound with it. Yeah. It's amazing. Tolerating who you are and decoupling it from what you do and what other people (laughs) think of you. I feel like we could just go on and on and on about this. And I know that's your specialty and you're building communities right now for that purpose to help people tell their story and own their voice. Where can we find you and how can we learn from you? Yes. Come, come hang out. So my website is NikkiInnocent.com. We also have a community that is a Mighty Networks community. And if you're not familiar with Mighty Networks, I am so excited about it. It's a woman-owned business. It's what I view as like a new social media slash connection platform that actually allows us to be human with each other. And in there, we're having all these conversations. We're offering some online courses. I'm going to be doing some live webinars and calls in there. We're really going to be building up that particular community. So I hope you join me there. And then on social media at Nikki Innocent. So I'd love if you're interested in anything I'm talking about, connect with me on the socials. And uh, I would love to hear your other story. I think that's one of my favorite things is to really be able to witness people sharing their stories and don't feel as though you need to buffer it for me in any kind of way. Tell me, tell me what your story is for yourself more than for me. You are just pure magic and just pure joy. And you wrap us all up in that. And I so appreciate you. Nikki also has an awesome podcast, Checkbox Other. I'm actually on it in one of the episodes, but she talks about all of this. How do we feel comfortable not fitting in and not owning the labels, but giving them And also you fit no matter what you fit. You're here. You fit in the fabric of this life in this world. So how do you allow yourself to just be you? My goodness. Yeah. And please, please come listen to Jess's episode. It was so good. I had so much fun having you on there. Same, same. (laughs) I adore you. I adore you right back. I'm Jessica Minhas and thanks for joining us on I'll Go First. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Our mission is to uplift and support you in your journey of healing. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, comment, and share. And if there's a topic you'd like us to dive deeper into or would like to share your story with us, we are available on all major platforms at I'll Go First and www.algofirst.com. We'll see you next time.